I was thinking as Brian was telling us about the Champa people in India, that I had a chance just yesterday afternoon to run and meet with, with one of our Southern Baptist career missionaries from India. Just spent about an hour with him yesterday afternoon and was telling me how difficult the work is in India. They have had the traditional religions for so long that what Christianity is trying to do to get an inroad there truly has to be a work of God. But he said one of the things that benefits the people in India that maybe we struggle against in America in trying to get the gospel out is that for many of the people in India, life is so difficult. The poverty is so real and the hardships are every day that heaven sounds more appealing to them than maybe it does to us at times. Because if our life is pretty good here, uh, it's hard for us to imagine how much greater heaven's going to be. But he said, well, if you can get the people in India to listen to what Christ offers at the cross and what heaven will be like, it does help. And So continue to pray for the, the Chamba people in India and for a friend of mine who's a Southern Baptist missionary, he and his wife and their three kids. His name is Ryan and her name is Sarah. So if you think as you pray for the people group this week, pray for Ryan and Sarah. They're home on stateside right now, but we'll be going back. For several weeks, we've been trying to find pictures in the New Testament of what faithfulness looks like for a church. There's no need for us to go through all the motions week after week, year after year as a church if we're not striving to be a faithful church. So what does faithfulness look like in a church? We've been to the book of Matthew. We've been to 1 Corinthians. We've been to 1 Timothy. We've been to the book of Acts. Trying to find profiles that demonstrate for us what faithfulness looks like. I want to add with me today to the very last book in the New Testament, the book of Revelation. And we'll see if we can find a snapshot or a profile in that book for what faithfulness looks like in a church. While you're turning there, I'll just remind you, John, who wrote the book of Revelation, is the last living apostle. And he has been exiled to the island of Patmos. I always think there's something a little sad when there has been a group of people that are very close. You sometimes read these stories about men who were in the same platoon in war and all of their closest army buddies have passed away and they are the final living person in their platoon. There is something about that that just seems sad to me. They're, they're the last man standing. John is that in an ultimate sense. All of the other disciples in that group of 12 and then Paul was added... He's the last one. They have all either died or been martyred. And John is not martyred. He's been exiled to this island in the Aegean Sea. And if, we don't know, but if exile to him meant what exile meant to most Roman exiles, it wasn't the picture of retirement on an island. He may very well have been assigned to hard labor, even as an old man. They showed no mercy just because of age. So to shut him up from spreading the message of the gospel, they send him out to this rock in the middle of the Aegean Sea. It's about eight miles long, north to south, and at its widest point, east to west, it's just about six miles. So it is not a big island. And while John is exiled there, God reveals to him what he writes in the book of Revelation. 
In that book of Revelation, toward the beginning of the book, there are seven letters written to seven actual historical churches. These were real churches with real believers in actual cities, seven different cities, seven different churches, seven different letters. In chapters 2 and 3, and I would encourage you sometime this week to read all seven of those letters, they are very short letters. They are letters that are basically a paragraph to each church. The church in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Five of the seven churches in their letters receive blistering criticism from Christ. These are Christ's personal letters to the seven churches, and five of the seven come with dire warnings. To one of the churches, he accuses them that they have lost their first love. Their love for the Lord has now grown cold. They still gather, they still meet, no doubt they still sang. Their theology was still safe, but the fire had gone out inside. To one church, he complains to them that they have compromised with the world. To another, he says they've actually let the world all the way into the church. And they're now very comfortable with sin in the church. The sin that was common in the world is now common in the church. And John writes what Christ wants that church to know. And he says, you've let the world all the way in. There's no difference between you and the lost world. To one church, he says, you have a reputation or you have the name of being alive. But I know the truth about you. You're actually dead. You're spiritually dead as a church. It looks like you have all the signs of life, but it's all just a front. You're dead. Stinging rebukes to five of the seven churches. And with those rebukes come warnings. Jesus says to those five churches, if you don't change, if you don't repent, I'm going to come. And when I come, it's not going to be pretty. But there are two churches in the seven that they, they receive no criticism. They receive no rebuke. There's no warnings. There's nothing negative said about them. No blame at all. What's amazing, church, I want you to realize this. There are no perfect churches. So what does it mean when Christ would write a short letter to a church and have nothing negative to say about them when he and I both know they weren't a perfect church. It means that churches can reach a level of faithfulness to God where they're not perfect. There's no perfect pastors. There's no perfect churches. But a church could be faithful enough to God that he has nothing negative to say to them. Only compliments. Only thanks. Only praise that a holy God would write a letter to unholy people and have nothing negative to say about them is very encouraging to me. It means that while the standard is perfection, a church doesn't have to be perfect to receive praise and compliments from the Lord. We can be faithful even when we fall short of perfection. So in Revelation chapter 3, we have one of those churches that received no rebuke. 
It's the church of Philadelphia is the one I want us to look at this morning. The city of Philadelphia was founded in about 150 B.C. John's writing this letter in about 90 to 100 A.D. So this city has been around for roughly 250 years, a little bit longer than we've been a nation. In the Roman Empire, that's not an old city but roughly 250 years old. Philadelphia is a prosperous city. As history tells us things about the city of Philadelphia, we find out that it is a city filled with temples, filled with temples to false deities and false gods. It's a prosperous city because it was along several major trade routes. It's also prosperous because in the area around Philadelphia, there were active volcanoes and earthquakes. And the volcanic activity from years before, all that ash had made for very rich soil. And so the agriculture around Philadelphia was tremendous. Uh, it, was, it, was an, it was an area known, in fact, for the grapes it grew. So it's a wealthy city, it's a prosperous city, and it's a city filled with temples to false gods. And by God's grace, in this city was a church, probably planted from the church in Ephesus. And so as the gospel grew, it reached the city of Philadelphia. Now, years later, Christ is writing a short letter back to that church. And I want us just to read that letter starting in Revelation 3, verse 7. John writes this to them. And to the messenger, or to the angel, of the church in Philadelphia, write, The words of the Holy One and the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but they lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I was tempted after reading and studying and thinking through this letter to the church at Philadelphia just to focus on the church, because there are some great things said about this church in Philadelphia. And so that's, that's what I wanted to do this morning. And the longer I studied and read this short letter to the church, I realized I can't do that and be faithful to the passage. 
because there's more in these few verses, this short letter, than just the church. So uh, let me tell you what I want to try to do today, and I'll just get through each one of them quickly. The beginning of the letter tells us some things about Jesus Christ, the one who's writing the letter. So I want to tell you, first of all, and these will be very brief, but I want to tell you from the passage three things about a faithful Lord. Then I want to tell you from the passage three things about a faithful church. And then if we have time, and if not, I'll stop. I want to tell you three things about a faithful reward. Because he ends by talking about the reward that the faithful Lord will give to the faithful church. So, three things about the Lord, three things about the church, and then three things about the reward. When you start out a letter, you usually don't have to identify a lot of things about who's writing it, unless who's writing it is more important than the recipient's. And the Lord is writing this letter to the church, and he wants us to know three things about the Lord, the faithful Lord. Look again at verse 7. To the messenger or the angel at the church at Philadelphia, here's what I want you to write. uh, John is to write this to the church. And here's the one who's writing it. These are the words of the Holy One and the True One. The the first thing, church, we learn about the, the writer or Christ in this letter is about his character. His character. The one writing the letter is holy and true. That makes what's going to come very important. It's not that Doug's writing a letter to the church at Philadelphia or that you're writing or that somebody from the church at Ephesus or Smyrna or Laodicea is writing a letter. It is the holy and true one who's writing the letter. The word holy sets Christ apart as being God. It's a word used to describe deity. He is separate from sin. That to me, church, is what makes it remarkable that the Holy One who's separate from sin could write a letter to a church and not bring up any of their sin. This had to be a faithful church. He is the Holy One. To a little church who's surrounded by false temples and false gods and false worship, Christ wants to remind them, the one who's writing to you isn't like any of those. He's holy. Do you realize that in the first century, a lot of the false religions, when they went to the temples, what was involved in the cult worship was gross immorality. I mean, they had, they had prostitutes that were involved in the cult worship. They had drunken parties that were part of the worship. And to this little church, surrounded by all of that, he's saying, the one you worship isn't like those, he's holy. But he's also true. The second part of his character is that he's true. The term highlights his faithfulness and and the fact that he's reliable. The word that's used here to describe Christ being true is a word that's almost never used of men. It's almost never used to describe people in the Bible or outside of the Bible. It is such a high word to describe someone who is true as opposed to false or true as opposed to fake. So the writer of this letter is the one who is totally reliable. He's faithful. It's interesting, church, that 60 years before this letter was written in Jerusalem, the world handed down its verdict about the writer of this letter, and they decided that he was not true. Remember? The verdict at Christ's trial was that he was a false teacher, he was a false prophet, he was a false messiah, 
and his claims were false. The world handed down its verdict that Jesus was false. Sixty years later, God is reminding that little church he's actually true. The world got it wrong. So the verdict is that he's holy and true. So the writer has something to say about his character, but he also has something to say about his authority. Look at the end of verse 7. The one who wrote to this little church is not only holy and true, he has the key of David, and he opens whatever he wants, and he shuts whatever he wants, and no one can open it if he does. We won't look it up, but this is a reference to Isaiah 22:22, where this exact sentence is almost repeated there. The keys of David and open and shutting doors. Only here, it's applied to Christ. Listen, it, if you have keys, what that implies is you have access and you have authority. So the writer says, listen, the one who's writing this to you is the one who has absolute authority. Keys represent that. If you, if you go on vacation and you give your keys to one of your neighbors to your house and say, hey, check on it occasionally, put the mail up, put our papers up, you're giving them authority over your house while you're gone, and you're giving them access to your house. That's what keys represent. And Christ is saying, listen, I have all the authority. When I close a door, nobody can open it, and when I open a door, nobody can close it. I'm writing to you as the one that is in the position of authority. What does it mean that Christ has the keys of David, the keys of the kingdom? I'll tell you what I think it ultimately means. He decides who goes in to the kingdom and who doesn't. He decides how you get into the kingdom. He decides how you get into God's family. He gets to lay down the rules of how you get into God's kingdom and who doesn't. He gets to say who's in and who's not. Christ has the authority, and he chooses its divine authority. You know, when you read through this, apparently the, the Jewish synagogue in Philadelphia was being very hard on the Christians. Because he actually says there's Jews who say they're the people of God, but in this letter, Christ says actually they're a synagogue of Satan. Apparently the Jewish synagogue had closed the doors to the synagogue in the face of the believers. You're not welcome here. They may have been Jewish believers who came to Christ, joined the little church in Philadelphia, and all of a sudden the Jewish synagogue, the established religion of the Old Testament, those people say, you're not welcome here anymore. They closed the door to the church. And it's as if Christ is reminding them, listen, I hold the keys to all the important doors. The Jewish people may be persecuting you and keeping you out. Don't let that bother you. I have the keys. I'm the one who determines. I remember, I hadn't thought about this in a long time, but I, when I was in high school, there was a man in our church that hired three of us high school guys one summer to work for him. And two brothers owned a business together. One of them, the one that hired us, was a believer and active in our church. The other one was about as far away from God as you could be and miserable in life, absolutely miserable. But the two brothers owned the business. And I remember we had not been working there very long. I got to work one day at 8 o'clock and, and clocked in, and the, the, the brother who had hired us, he said, hey, why don't you run get us all donuts? Just take the van. They had several company vehicles, and take the van and go get us donuts. And he said, in fact, why don't all three of you go together? And I was like, well, one of us can get the donuts. He's like, no, just all three of you go. So we go, and we get the donuts, and we come back. 
And I grab a donut and head outside to go to work, and he said, no, just sit down and eat the donut. So we're sitting in his office, all three of us with one of the brothers, laughing and eating donuts, and on the clock, I'm thinking, this is as good as it gets. You get paid to eat donuts. The other brother walks in, and he said, have you guys clocked in? We're like, yeah. He said, who went and got the donuts? We're like, well, all three of us did. And he said, well, get to work. So I stood up to leave, and the other brother said, sit down. I said, you'll eat your donut in here in the air conditioning, and then we'll go to work. And the other brother said, now, get to work. And the other brother said, I said, sit down. And it's two brothers who don't like each other, and neither one of them are talking to each other. They're just talking to the three of us. And it's a horrible place for a 16-year-old to be. Listen, if you hire kids, don't do that to them. And I mean, the one who hired me was as serious as he could be, and he said, when you're finished with that donut, if you want another one, you'll sit in here and eat it, and if you want another one, you'll sit in here and eat it. And I'm thinking, we should have bought four dozen. I could sit in here till noon. And the other brother said, take your donut and eat it while you work. And I just remember standing there trying to decide, am I going to sit back down or am I going to go to work? And I had to, I, had to, I had to think through who has the ultimate authority here because both of them believe they do. And I know I don't. And I thought, all right, who hired me? So I'm going to go with that one. I just, I hated the tension. I, I think God is wanting this little church in Philadelphia to know, I have all the authority. The world's going to tell you what to do sometimes as a church. I said, sit down. You'll do what I say. Other people, other churches may want to tell you what to do. They do not have the authority. I have the keys. I shut doors. I open doors. No one can open them. No one can shut them. I have all the power. I am the one writing you this letter. I'm writing it from a position of authority. You don't get a vote on what I say in this letter. It's not that you hold some of the cards and God holds some of the cards. God holds all the cards. It's not that he has the long end of the stick and you have the short end of the stick. He has all the stick. So I am the one who opens and shuts and has the keys. I have all the keys that matter. And when I say sit down, you sit down. And when I say stand up, and when I say go, you go as a church. When I say give, when I say pray, when I say submit, I'm the one with the authority. So he's wanting to establish before he even compliments the church who's writing the church, and it's the one who has character. He's holy and true, and he's the one who has all the authority. But the last thing I want to make sure you know about the writer is the third thing he talks about, and it's his omniscience. And that's just a big word that means God knows all. Look at verse 8. After he says, I'm the one who has the keys, he says, I know your works. I know your works. The one who's writing the letter knows everything about this church. There's nothing God doesn't know. Listen, when somebody as powerful and as holy as the Lord Jesus Christ writes to a church like Trinity or the church at Philadelphia and says, I know your efforts, 
I know what you're doing in ministry. I even know your motives. I know why you're doing it. I, I know your works. That, al- that almost puts a pit in my stomach. There's nothing he doesn't know. And it, it's, it's the picture that individually and collectively, individually you're hopefully doing some works for the Lord. It is not that works save us. The Bible makes that clear. You don't do works to earn God's favor. God's gracious gift of salvation has been given to you, and as a response to that, we want to minister. We want to bear fruit. We want to work. And he says, listen, I I know what you're doing as a church. I notice. I'm watching. If I can borrow from last week's message on spiritual gifts, we all bring the giftedness that God has given us to the body of Christ, and we use those gifts to work, to minister. And the head of the church is saying, I'm not so busy that I don't notice. That's serious to me. We're all working together, and Christ is watching. So the writer of the letter says, listen, I... I have certain characters, I have certain characteristics about me and my nature, and they're holy and true, and I have all the authority, and I know everything about your church. Now listen to what I have to say based on those three things. And here's the three huge statements, if I could summarize, about a faithful church. What kind of church receives no criticism? What kind of church receives nothing negative, no blame, no warnings, no threats? Because when you read through the other letters, some of the things are threats. I mean, he is threatening those churches. What kind of church receives no threats? It's this kind of church. Look again at verse 8. I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door. That is probably a reference to some opportunities for ministry or opportunities for missions. I've set before you as a church some open doors. Almost every time that phrase is used in the New Testament, it has to do with ministry opportunities. I have set before you some opportunities as a church which no one is able to shut. Then he makes this comment. I know that you have but little power. That is probably a reference to the size of the church. So I would tell you the first thing we learn about a faithful church is this. Faithfulness has nothing to do with size. Nothing to do with size. I know that you have little power. You're, you're a small church. You can't throw your weight around in Philadelphia. It's not like the city council is going to listen to you because of how influential you are as a church. It's not like you have any political clout. You can't pull some strings in Philadelphia to get favorable treatment as a church. You have some power. He doesn't say you have no power, but you have very little power in Philadelphia. That's interesting to me that of the two, listen, of the two churches that receive no criticism from Christ, one of them, he says, is small, and the other one, Smyrna, that receives no criticism, he says, is poor. I know you're small but faithful. I know you're poor but faithful. Now, the one in Smyrna, he goes on to say, but I actually think you're rich. The world says you're poor. I think you're rich. Listen, church, please remember that the world's judgment on churches and on Christ is almost always wrong. And he says, listen, I I get it. You're, You're a small church. But size has absolutely nothing to do with faithfulness. 
You could be a large church and be faithful, or you could be a large church and be unfaithful. You could be a small church and be faithful, or you could be a small church and be unfaithful. It is not the measure of faithfulness. Because this church is small in Philadelphia, and yet he has nothing negative to say. They are faithful. Had an older pastor several months ago. I was visiting with him about ministry and churches. He's about to retire. He's 70. Probably one of the most scholarly pastors of a local church I know. I mean, he is a true Bible scholar. And at the end of our conversation, he said to me, he said, Doug, I'm afraid we are raising a generation of young pastors who believe the only way they can have an impact is if they pastor mega churches. Listen, if that's true, almost none of the younger generation of pastors growing up would have sent a resume to Philadelphia. It's not true that size is a measure of faithfulness. John says, I, I get it. I, I get where you live and how difficult it is there and that you're a small congregation. And yet, faithfulness has nothing to do with size. Number two, faithfulness has everything to do with loyalty. Look at what he says right after that. I know that you have little power. And yet, you have kept my word and have not denied my name. That phrase to me sums up the loyalty of a church. You have kept my word, and you have not denied my name. Of all the compliments that Christ pays to the seven churches, this may be my favorite. Because even the ones he has criticism of, he does say something, for the most part, something good about what they're doing. For two of the churches, it's all good. And the good thing he says about this church is, although you're small, there's two things you've never done. You have, you have not broken my word, and you have not denied my name. You kept my word. To say that the church in Philadelphia kept his word is to say they were an obedient church. They were obedient. They didn't substitute their wisdom for God's word, which is the great temptation. But if you would, I... Keep your finger in Revelation 3 because we're going to be right back there. But turn over to John 14. I want to show you something in John 14. To tell a church that they kept God's word is an amazing statement when you think about what Christ said in John 14. So if you just flip over to John 14, I want to show you something he said there. Because it makes me realize that this church in Philadelphia must have really loved the Lord. Because in John 14, keeping his word is equated with loving the Lord. John 14, look at verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Skip down to verse 21. Whoever has my commands and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And Jesus just won't let it go. He gets to verse 23 of John 14. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Verse 24. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. I mean, that seems to be the reoccurring theme in John 14. If you love me, you'll keep my word. If you don't keep my word, you don't love me. The one who loves me keeps my commands. If you don't keep my commands, you don't love me. And then years later, the same guy who said that in John 14 writes to this church and he says, you kept my word. 
That's like saying, you love me. That is a huge compliment. Loyal to the person of Christ, loyal to his word, and refusing to deny his name. You've kept my word. You've been obedient. You were loyal. But then he also says, you've not denied my name. No doubt there was pressure on this church in Philadelphia to deny the name of Christ. Surrounded by organized religion, both Jewish and false religions, paganism. There had to be intense pressure to deny the name of Christ. We find in church history that within a hundred years of when he wrote this, one of the few things we learned from church history about the church at Philadelphia is that there were men who were martyred from the church in Philadelphia because they would not deny the name of Christ. Intense pressure. Give up on his word and deny his name. And this small, non-influential, not a lot of clout, no power church, little power church refused to give up on his word or his name. Last thing about the church. Faithfulness has nothing to do with size. Faithfulness has everything to do with loyalty. And the third thing about the church is faithfulness has everything to do with perseverance. Church, look at verse 10. After saying, I know you kept my word and you did not deny my name, he says in verse 10, because you have kept my word about patient endurance. Patient endurance. You, you kept my word in general, but as a church, you also kept my word about perseverance. In our instant world today, where everything has to be instant, I wonder how much we really know about patience. In a world where we're so focused on the immediate, I wonder how much we really know about endurance. Do you realize how, how we are so, we've so been trained to think everything has to be instant? I mean, I would ask if this were like a Sunday school class for other confessions, but I'll just own up. I stopped to fill up with gas this week, and I mean, it's so instant now, you don't even have to go in to pay, right? I mean, you can pay right out there and get you moving again, and paid at the pump. It said, begin fueling, stuck the nozzle in my car, and it took like five or six seconds for it to start pumping. And I, I was like, what is wrong with this thing? I mean, if it says begin pumping, it needs to start pumping right now. Five or six seconds. I mean, what on earth was so important that I, I was like, I was like, do I need to change pumps or what is, and then it finally started and I was like, good grief. And I realized I'm, we, instant fast food. I mean, if it takes too long in the drive-thru, I know some of you, don't sit out there like you're judging me. I, I mean, I'm, I'm owning up to one at a gas station and I know some of you are with me. We want it now. Five or six seconds is too long to wait. And he writes to this church and he says, listen, one of the hallmarks about your church is you patiently endured. To them, being a church wasn't about a sprint. It was about a marathon. And they had perseverance. They're suffering at the hands of the Jews. Who, who he actually says they think they're a synagogue, but they're actually a synagogue of Satan. I mean, Jesus pulls no punches here. The people who claim to be the people of God, from all the way in the Old Testament, the Jewish synagogue in Philadelphia, is making life difficult on this small church. 
and they're just enduring it. They're like, hey, listen, we, we plan on going all 15 rounds. We're not, we're not throwing in the towel. We are patiently persevering. We will endure. And the opposition was so bad, he says, it's actually not just Jewish opposition, it's satanic opposition. They're the synagogue of Satan. That's who's opposing you. Your opposition is actually demonic. And yet they stayed faithful to their commitments with patience. Faithfulness has nothing to do with size in this church. Faithfulness has everything to do with loyalty, and faithfulness has everything to do with perseverance. I have a question for you this morning. I want you to answer it honestly in your heart. How many of you would have enjoyed being a member at this church? It's a small church. And you don't, you're not going to have much influence if you're a member here. And you're surrounded by temples to false gods. So you're in the minority. And Jesus knew this church, and he says, I'm going to know everything you do. I'm going to know your works. But not only does Jesus know about this church, Satan knows about this church and is opposing it. They're facing persecution. They're totally committed to God's word rather than men's opinions. They're never going to deny his name no matter how bad the pressure gets. And if you join here, you're going to need a whole lot of patience for a whole lot of enduring. How many of us, as we visit different churches, would say, yeah, that's the one I want to plant my family in? How many of us would want to pastor this church? And yet it's one of only two that all he has to say about it is good stuff. It is a profile in faithfulness. Well, if you'll give me just a minute, I'll try to, I'll try to finish this with the rewards. So I want to be faithful to the whole letter. So I want to just mention the rewards that the Lord promises this church. Now, I want to say this. The first six things I've mentioned, the character of the writer, Jesus Christ, and the authority of the writer, uh, and that he has all the power, and the omniscience of the writer, those are set in concrete. And the three things I told you about the church, that faithfulness has nothing to do with size, it has everything to do with loyalty, and it has everything to do with perseverance. Those three things are set in concrete. The three promises made to this church are also set in concrete. However, they're not quite as clear. As I read and read and studied and tried to figure out what are these three promises that God makes to this faithful church, there, there is some, not God's fault, but as I study it and read it and try to think through what are the promises, there are parts of it that are uh, a little wider there are faithful people who say, I think this is part of the promise, and other people who say that the promises are set in concrete. But there is, there is some wiggle room in trying to figure out exactly how those promises play out. So let me just mention them to you. Look at verse 9. The first promise is, I'm going to call a promise of vindication to this church. God promises to vindicate them in verse 9. He said, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews but are not. They're a bunch of liars, he says. 
Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. That's a promise to this little church that's surrounded by people that oppose them, that one day God is going to make those people who oppose them show up at church and bow down. And they're going to have to admit, I set my love on you. I love this little church that they hated. I love this church that they persecuted. I love this church that they closed doors in your face and I opened doors for you. I love you. God loves faithful churches. And he says, one day I'm going to vindicate you. Right now you, you look like the one who's getting beat up, and they were. But he said, there's a day coming when those who have opposed you will have to acknowledge something. They're going to acknowledge that I love you, and they will bow at your feet. So the promise of vindication is set in concrete. But what does it mean that the people who opposed the church were one day going to show up at church and bow? There are some who believe all that is is saying there's, there's a humbling time coming for those people that oppose the church. Maybe even more than humbling, they're going to be humiliated and have to acknowledge, I was wrong, you were right, God loves you. Others who see a little bit more in this, and they're hopeful. I mean, th this is the amazing part of Christian love. Some people see in this that these people are going to show up in the presence of the church and bow down which is a phrase that's almost always used in the Bible to refer to worship. And there are some people that at least wonder, in this promise that the church is going to be vindicated, is there also a promise that some of those people who opposed you and persecuted you will one day actually come to faith and at church bow down? I know one day everybody's going to bow, right? I mean, one day God's going to force everybody, every knee to bow. But is this a promise that maybe in the church you'll actually see some of those people who hated and persecuted you worshiping with you because they're going to bow with you? Others say, no, it's all just about their humiliation. They're going to have to admit they were wrong. But others say there could be at least a hint in here that there's also repentance involved in their acknowledgement. I would hope it includes repentance. I would hope it includes them coming to faith and experiencing the forgiveness I have, even if at one time they persecuted us. Isn't that the amazing thing about Christianity? We would pray for the salvation of people who hate us. That's how deeply we've been touched by Christ. So there's a promise of vindication. There's also a promise of security in verse 10. He says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world. There's a promise of security. You kept my word, I will keep you. You kept my word, I will keep you. Secure. Church, please don't believe that this is a promise of physical security because all through the book of Revelation, Christians are dying. There's martyrs underneath the altar saying, God, when are you going to stop all this? And the answer was, once all the Christian martyrs have been killed. It is not a promise that there won't be hard times. I think it's a promise of spiritual security. I will keep you. I will not lose one of you. No matter how bad the times get for your small, little, faithful church in Philadelphia, I will keep you. But the part people wonder about here is, is this just a reference to the little church in Philadelphia, or is it a reference to the whole church? the worldwide church. It is, is it somewhere a kind of a, a hint on Christ's part to say, 
when the great tribulation comes, I will keep the church out of it. There are some people who see in this verse a pre-tribulation rapture. I will keep you out of the testing. And others say, no, it's just a promise for the local church in Philadelphia. Regardless of which of those you take, it is a promise of security for God's people. By the way, and I'll just mention this, the people who want to argue that it has to be a reference to the whole church before the great tribulation and revelation argue that based on the fact that it says there is a trial coming to the whole world. But I want to be honest with Scripture. There are times that the phrase the whole world or the entire world is used in the Bible and, and it refers to the whole world from the perspective of the person who's reading it. In fact, Luke 2.1 is a great example of that. In Jesus' birth story, it says a decree was sent out by Caesar Augustus that, that the whole world should be registered. It means the whole Roman world. The people in China weren't going to be registered. So it says the whole world, but it doesn't mean every living inhabitant on the world. It means the whole world from their perspective, the whole Roman Empire. So is this just a massive persecution and time of testing for the people at Philadelphia, or is it the whole world? I don't know, but I do know this. The promise is for security. And the last promise, and I'll just end with this. He says, I'll make in verse um, 12... The one who conquers, the one who stays faithful, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And here's the phrase, he shall never go out of it. There's the promise of eternity to faithful people. The description of heaven and us being a, a pillar in the temple and him writing his name on us. and Don't know how all that's going to play out, but I know this, there's a phrase in there that says, when you get there, you'll never go out of it. You'll never leave. There is the promise of vindication for a faithful church, there's the promise of security, and there's the promise of eternity. You'll never leave. Listen, I, I, I so want to contribute to a faithful church. I want to be a faithful church. I'm afraid there's so many today that aren't faithful. So if we step back from the rewards that are promised and just look back at the church again, can we strive to be a church that believes faithfulness is not about size, Faithfulness is about loyalty, and faithfulness is about endurance. And the one who said that is the one who has all the character. He's holy and true. He has all the authority. He opens and shuts doors, and he has all the knowledge. He knows this church. He knows what this church will face tomorrow. He knows what this church will face in five years. He knows our works. And the only thing we should care about is whether he's pleased with our works. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm so grateful for the snapshot you give us of a faithful church. You're, you're such a gracious Lord that you could write to an imperfect church and have no criticism. And I pray that you would believe that about this church. That as we look at the church at Philadelphia, we would say, can, can we be a church that you would write and only have praise, only have compliments? You'd write to us and say, I'm, one day I'm going to make the world recognize that I loved this church. God, I do pray that people who are anti-Christ would find at this church a place to bow down and worship. I do pray that you would open doors of ministry for us, doors that no one can shut, and that when you do, we would faithfully go through those doors. Help us know how to do that. Help us, God, to be a faithful church. Help us to be individually faithful. 
And God, if there's somebody here today that's outside of your family, and these words about Christ being faithful and true and all-powerful and all-knowing might convict their heart that they need salvation, I pray today would be the day they would find salvation. Church, as I say amen in just a minute and we stand to sing, I, I pray you'd think about this church and what kind of letter Christ would write to us and whether it would sound anything at all like the church in Philadelphia. Amen. Would you stand and sing with me?